All right, so this is uh, back to our study. We've had a couple of weeks uh, break uh, with all of the activities around Plum Creek Chapel, but we're back uh, on track with our What Lies Ahead series. This is the 24th installment uh, of this series, and we've spent actually the last nine weeks uh, kind of focused on what Jesus had to say about the end times, and that is uh, a portion of Scripture that we call what? Anybody remember? The Olivet Discourse. Yes. Thank you. I see that hand. Uh, so, uh, so we're in the Olivet Discourse, and we're going to finish that up today. And we're going to be looking at a key uh, section uh, at the very end called the Sheep and the Goats uh, Judgment. So I know we've got a lot of people watching by live stream. I want to remind you that the books that we're kind of the book that we're kind of using as a template for this. For those of you here, it's available on the table at the back. You feel free to pick one up. Uh, for those of you watching by live stream, you can go to notbyworks.org and click on the store uh, and, uh, and uh, get a copy. Uh, but <clears throat> if you are, if you do have the book, at the very end of, of uh, chapter 13, I think it is, let me make sure I'm not telling you wrong here, uh, we get to this sheep and the goat's judgment. Uh, yeah, chapter 13, it's page 275, and we call it the judgment of the nations and the establishment of the Messianic Kingdom. So this is a pretty fascinating uh, passage. Uh, since it's been a while uh, that we were in the Olivet Discourse, let me take a moment just to set the stage very quickly. I know those of you that have been tracking with us, this may sound repetitive, but remember the whole point of the Olivet Discourse was Jesus' disciples were getting antsy about the coming of the Kingdom. Uh, Luke tells us that they had thought the kingdom was going to be inaugurated when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm, what we celebrate as Palm Sunday. It actually took place on Monday. And uh, that week of Passover when he ultimately was betrayed, arrested, tried, and crucified. But as they saw everything kind of happening, saw him interact with the Jewish leaders and scribes where he rebuked them very harshly in Matthew 23. By the way, next time someone tells you that uh, you know Jesus is is kinder and softer and gentler and we shouldn't be mean. Like someone emailed me this week after my Wednesday series and said I was too mean to the LGBT community, you know, because if you take a stand on anything, you're considered hateful. Um, when next time someone tells you that, just point them to Matthew 23, when Jesus has some very loving things to say about the Pharisees, like, you know, hypocrites, vipers, whitewashed tombs, you know, loving, kind words like that. But anyway, when the disciples heard that, uh, they got concerned, especially when he rebuked the temple and he claimed that the temple would fall apart and that it would be rebuilt in three, you know, that until he comes back, it would be not one stone would be left upon the other. So they started kind of piecing together wait a minute, what's going on? How can you have this long awaited kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament where Jesus is going to take the throne as promised through the Davidic covenant and rule and reign forever and ever over a perfect kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. How can you have that if the temple is destroyed? So he had told them, of course, throughout his ministry with a greater intensity and greater clarity the longer he went in his ministry that he would have to suffer and die before he could reign. But they were fixated on the kingdom. Remember, they wanted to know who would sit where, who would be the greatest, you know, what are they going to get in the kingdom? They just kind of let that part slip past them and didn't really pay attention. So that's the context. And finally, they ask specifically, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When, when, when is this kingdom going to come? And then beginning in verse 4 of chapter 24, this is Matthew's account. Remember, the Olivet Discourse is also 
recorded in Mark 13 and Luke 21, but we've kind of been tracking with Matthew's account. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 24, Jesus answers that question. There's been a lot of misunderstanding about the Olivet Discourse as we've talked about. A lot of people think it somehow relates to the church or the rapture, none of which are part of the Olivet Discourse. I've made that case extensively. It's all about Israel, all about the coming kingdom, all about the inauguration of the Messianic age when Jesus takes the throne. Um, So he starts out with general signs that will accompany the tribulation period. Uh, Remember, according to Scripture, the final seven years leading up to the return of Christ are variously referred to in Scripture as uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, the seven-year tribulation, the great day of the Lord's wrath, the overflowing scourge, so forth and so on. Very clear in Scripture that that's a seven-year period. Sometimes it's referred to as 1,260 days for the first three and a half years. Sometimes it's referred to as a time, times, and half a time, or one year, two years, and half a year. Um, But it's clearly a seven-year period, most notably in Daniel 9, when he uses the term Shabuah, which means a seven-year period in the context. Um, And so this seven-year period, as you see on the chart, will be the immediate seven years prior to uh, the return of Christ. We're living here over in the far left where you see the word church. We're living in the church age today. Uh, and and as, we're going, as we've already talked about in this series, and we'll touch on some more uh, in the coming weeks, uh, our blessed hope is the rapture. That's when we look for the Lord to rescue us before this great and terrible day of God's wrath. The Bible unambiguously promises the church that we will not have to be on earth during the outpouring of God's cosmic wrath. So the seven years constitutes this final climactic time in the struggle between Satan and God. There's all kinds of supernatural things going on. The book of Revelation talks about the wrath of Satan and the wrath of God, and it's all being poured out through the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. But we will not be here then. does not mean we won't have to face terrible times and to suffer unspeakable persecutions. The church for 2,000 years has suffered unspeakable persecutions, and even right now today, many believers are facing terrible persecution. So nobody (laughs) that knows their Bible anyway teaches that the rapture will rescue us before we have to suffer. That's not the point at all. But the Bible does promise unambiguously that we will be rescued before the seven-year tribulation. And so in going back to the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is explaining, since they want to know what, what will be the sign of your coming, how will we know when your coming is near, he begins to de- detail for them some of these uh, signs. And we showed you how the things that Jesus teaches here in Matthew 24 correspond perfectly to what we read in Revelation cha- beginning in chapter 6. Then at the, uh, he, ta- he gets to the midpoint of the tribulation, uh, when as both Daniel and Jesus prophesied, Uh, The Antichrist will set himself up as God, demand that everybody worship him, and he'll break the treaty that he had uh, signed with Israel, and and everybody will have to take the mark of the beast if they're wanting to buy and sell and trade. Believers will be persecuted, particularly the Jews uh, that have believed. Uh, Satan's going to turn his wrath on them, hunt them down. That's why Jesus here in the Olivet Discourse says, when you see that, head for the hills. It's it's really going to get tough, so hide out. Uh, And again, he's speaking to this future generation of uh, Israel that will be alive when all of this happens. They did not know at this time that it would be 2,000 years or more at that time. Uh, The nature of prophecy is the... And I talk about this in the uh, chapter on the 
uh, in the book. I actually reread this section of the uh, of my book uh, 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 this week because I wanted to make sure I still agree with myself, and I do. You'll be glad to know. Uh, but I point this out in the book that uh, the prophecies are always given to a a generation at a moment in time, but that generation is not always the generation that will see the fulfillment of it. And we've talked about this, so this should be sound somewhat familiar. But, for example, Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before Christ, told the, the Jews at that time that the virgin would conceive and have a child. But that didn't happen for 700 years, right? So the nature of prophecy is one group hears it, another group often fulfills it or sees the fulfillment. Sometimes prophecies happen in short order, called near prophecies. And so he, he prophesies to a group who actually sees the fulfillment. But often... Prophecies don't have their fulfillment until later, and that is the case here. The disciples, for all they knew at the time they were receiving this, thought they were going to be the ones that were alive when this happened, and they wanted to know what to look for. Turns out, in God's prophetic timetable and his sovereignty, it didn't happen in that, in that way. So then, uh, moving again through the Olivet Discourse, he, in, in chapter 24, we come to the first of two times in the Olivet Discourse where Jesus specifically describes his return. And, and he says, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory, then will he sit on his glorious throne. The other time is the passage we're looking at this morning. Uh, so twice he speaks of his return. So he talks about that there. And then beginning in verse 32 with the entire rest of the Olivet Discourse, including the section we're going to close out with today, the final part of the Olivet Discourse, it's all about application. It's, you know, by the time you get to chapter 24, verse 31, point number five on the outline there, uh, he's come back, so he's answered their question. He's told them what to look for. When he comes back, it's going to be like lightning from the east to the west. You won't have to wonder. He basically uses a couple of metaphors there to say, if you're wondering, was this the return of Christ? It wasn't. It'll be universally known. Everyone will see the Son of Man coming in power and great glory. And then... He begins to use some analogies. We've talked about these. Uh, these were not the, uh, prophecies. These are analogies. He starts with a parable, then three analogies, and then another parable. So that's kind of all of these relate to watchfulness or readiness. Basically, having given them the answer to their question, he says, so be ready. First thing he says is, as uh, when a fig tree begins to sprout, you know that summer is near when you see the green leaves. Similarly, when you see all these things I've just told you, you know my coming is near, so be ready. Same thing with the analogy of the flood. In the days of Noah, uh, Noah was pronouncing judgment, warning and warning and warning, and, and they ignored it and didn't listen, and so guess what? The flood came and swept them all away into judgment. They were all destroyed. Uh, in the same way, if you don't heed my warning, uh, when, when I come back the next time, you're going to be swept away in judgment. Uh, same thing with the householder and the thief. If the householder had known what hour the thief was going to come, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. So you too be ready. Uh, and the same thing with uh, faithful and evil servants and the parable of the ten virgins. Remember, five were wise, five were evil, and the uh, foolish are not evil, but foolish, the text says, which I guess is evil, but foolish in that they didn't prepare, they weren't paying attention, they ran out of oil, and the door was shut, and they were left behind. Uh, or they were judged. So then we looked at the parable of the talents, and we talked about the differences between that and the parable of the minas. They're not the same thing, different context, different audience, different meaning, and different details. In the parable of the minas, which is a reference, a veiled reference to the church, where Jesus says, I'm going to go away for a while, 
By the way, he had said that one just five days earlier on, on Sunday night, so Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, four days earlier. Uh, and he had basically told the disciples, you think the kingdom's going to come right away, but you're, there's going to be a delay. Be ready. And while I'm gone, you need to be about the Father's business and, and uh, be being good stewards of what I've entrusted you with. And when I come back, then I will reward you accordingly. In the parable of Minas, they each get the same thing, one Mina, one life of service. Parable of Talents is all about Israel. They don't get the same thing. One gets one, five, ten, uh, showing that throughout Israel's history, at various points in time, they've had greater and lesser degrees of opportunity and knowledge and prime time, and this is their final opportunity. They now have one final talent. They better spend it wisely is the idea. So today we come to the sheep and the goats judgment, and I want to review uh, the five end times judgments. Um, We've talked about the judgment seat of Christ, which is a judgment just for believers at the rapture. Judgment is a bit of a, a, a confusing name in English because when we think of a judgment, we think of guilt or innocence. That's not what the judgment seat of Christ is about, as those texts plainly tell us. It's about reward, and uh, we will be rewarded with positions of authority and other rewards in the kingdom based on how faithful we were on earth during our Christian life. No punitive damages, no punishment, no negative consequences. It's either reward or lack of reward. And then we're going to see at Christ's second coming, the first judgment, will be the judgment of the Antichrist and false prophet. And they will be cast into the uh, lake of fire. Immediately on the heels of that is the judgment we're going to look at next, and that's the sheep and the goats judgment. The sheep and the goats judgment is the only judgment in the future, the only one that involves both believers and unbelievers. The rapture is only for believers, and we're rescued from this present evil age before the great and terrible day of the Lord. The great white throne judgment, which we will look at down the road after the millennial phase of the kingdom, is only for unbelievers. Only unbelievers will appear before the great white throne, at which time they will uh, be trying to justify why they should get into heaven based on their works. And they will have all these books filled up with all their good deeds. And Jesus is going to say, sorry, I never knew you. The only book that matters is the book of life. And the only way your name can be written in the book of life is if by faith alone you've trusted in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for your sins. And if you've never done that, then today's the day to do that. Because we're not promised tomorrow. James says life is but a vapor. We also don't know when the Lord's going to come back. And if you haven't trusted Christ today in this great last days of deception, what makes you think you're going to be able to trust Christ after the church is rescued and Satan takes over through the Antichrist and deception gets worse and worse and worse. So don't wait. Uh, your eternal destiny is at stake. The only hope for sinful mankind is to place their faith in the one who took their place on the cross, Jesus Christ, paid their penalty, rose from the dead, and offers to them forgiveness of sins. And you receive that by faith. That's the only way to receive it. So at the great white throne judgment, people are going to have all these books and hope to uh, you know, uh, justify themselves before a holy God, and he's going to say, I never knew you. Uh, so those are the five judgments. We're going to zero in now on what we call the sheep and the, the goat's judgment, sometimes uh, referred to as uh, the judgment of the nations. Now, uh, let's take a look. Let's kind of read through the text, and we'll make some comments uh, along the way. So it starts in verse 31 of chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him. 
Remember, there are uh, holy angels and fallen angels. One third of the angels that were created fell with Satan and are now demons. Some people suggest there's a distinction between fallen angels and demons. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I do believe there are classes of demons. We talked about this in my Spirit of the Antichrist series. Some demons were uh, confined and imprisoned in the abyss. Uh, in fact, in our message in Hebrews this morning in the worship hour, I'm going to make a reference to that concept of the abyss because it kind of comes up in a side note. Uh, and they, those demons that are currently confined, imprisoned, they will be released at the midpoint of the tribulation to go back to work with Satan as things get really, really desperate in the final hour before the second coming of Christ. Another class of angels was permanently imprisoned. Those that left their proper domain in Genesis 6, cohabited with women, created a race of uh, giants called the Nephilim. That was so abhorrent to God that, that he put them in prison in Tartarus, the New Testament tells us, and they're there until they then get cast into the lake of fire. They're never going to get out until they go to the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. But here Jesus is ta not talking about those angels. He's talking about the holy angels. And when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as, there's the a simile, a, a, a figure of speech using like or as. So he's not talking about literal sheep here, and he's not talking about literal goats. He's talking about believers and unbelievers. As a shepherd divides his sheep uh, from the goats. Now, again, you got to picture the timing of this. <clears throat> here we are uh, at the end of the tribulation. Christ has come back. And those who are alive in their physical bodies, uh, who have survived the tribulation, will at that moment be segregated as to who gets into the kingdom. And Jesus says to them, as we shall see, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. And they'll step through the kingdom like they're walking into you know, a beautiful temple. And then to the others, the goats, he will say, Depart from me into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So you see the contrast there between the holy angels that will come with Christ and later on as we get to that verse, the, the devil's angels, the fallen angels or the demons. And so when you get to this point, there's only two groups of people on the earth as there are only two groups of people on the earth at any time. Those who've placed their faith in Jesus and those who haven't. So <clears throat> at this point, there will also, by the end of the seven years, have been a number of people who've died. You know, as the wrath of God is being poured out, we read uh, in the book of Revelation about times where one-third of the earth's population dies, one-quarter, I think, before that. Um, poisoned water, uh, you know, hailstones, earthquakes like never before seen. So there'll be a lot of devastation and death. And people who die during the tribulation, as, as it is with the people who die at any point in human history, if they know the Lord by faith, they will go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. If they do not, they will go immediately to be in hell. So, But we're talking here about those who are living in their physical bodies. They've survived. Now, uh, at the second coming, all believers from the Old Testament times, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, etc., as well as those believers who died during the tribulation, 
just those two groups, all the believers prior to the church age and those believers since the rapture forward during the tribulation that got saved, those believers who've died will be resurrected based on Isaiah 26 and Daniel chapter 12. So uh, in my chart book, another chart that we have there is uh, when will our bodies be resurrected? Now don't be confused. Every person who dies never loses consciousness. You either go immediately to heaven or immediately to hell. We're talking here about your physicality, the atoms, the bones and flesh and blood, the physical bodies. According to Scripture, all bodies will be resurrected. And for believers, those who were saved during the Old Testament, the first row there, and those who were saved during the tribulation, will be resurrected at Christ's second coming based on Daniel 12 and Isaiah 26. So that when the kingdom starts, going back to our end times chart, when the kingdom starts, remember, see down there in the bottom right, the messianic kingdom in purple? The kingdom begins with Christ's return. The first thousand years of it are the old er, are on the old earth. But at the end of that thousand years, Satan is set free from prison. There's one final cosmic battle. And then the old heaven and old earth are destroyed by fire this time, not by water like they were in Genesis, but by fire. And everything is recreated in sinless perfection. The curse of sin on the earth does not just affect you and I. It's because of the curse of sin that everything fell. You know, we, we now have uh, hurricanes and tornadoes and poison ivy and animosity and we have disease and accidental death and bloodshed and uh, you know, things like that. Certain household pets who shall remain nameless, right? We won't mention them, <laughs> are a result of the fall. So, um, uh, but, but after, so, so the, the curse of sin is not something you can just put a Band-Aid on, right? There's no renovation here. This isn't like global makeover, you know, some new reality show. This, he's got to destroy the old earth cur under the curse of sin and recreate it in sinless perfection. And we read about that in Revelation uh, 20, 21, and 22, when God, 21 in particular, when Christ comes back and makes all things new. Not better or corrected or healed, but new, completely recreates them. And Peter talks about that as well. So what I want you to notice is that the return of Christ here, where this arrow is pointing, we have, when Christ comes back and separates the sheep from the goats, when the kingdom starts and the clock starts ticking on that first thousand years, there will be believers in their physical bodies who begin to populate the kingdom, those who were the sheep that we're talking about. But there will also be all believers in their resurrected bodies, and that includes the church. Now, remember, the church, we receive our resurrected body at the rapture. A church-age believer, the second row here, receives our, we receive our glorified body at the rapture. Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. This mortal must put on immortality. This corruptible must put on incorruption, uh, so forth. So we will be there, too. In fact, Revelation 19 tells us we're coming back with Christ. So we're in heaven during this whole seven-year period. Then we come back with Christ riding on white horses. We inaugurate the kingdom. We help rule and reign in the kingdom and positions of authority in the kingdom. Remember, Jesus said that the disciples would, rule on, would reign on 12 thrones with him. And he promises us in Hebrews that we can reign with him in various capacities as well if we're faithful. 
So there will be different classes of citizens in the kingdom, just like there are today. But it'll be a time of unprecedented peace and righteousness. So to review, you've got glorified saints, those in their physical bodies, that include the church, the bride of Christ, and Old Testament saints, and tribulation saints who died. But you've also got non-glorified saints, those in their physical bodies, who survived the tribulation. Remember, we talked about this several weeks or months ago when we got to Matthew 24, I think it's verse 13, when Jesus says, those who endure to the end will be delivered into the kingdom. A lot of people, especially Calvinists, misunderstand that verse because Calvinists don't have an eschatology. They think the rapture and second coming are the same thing. Uh, so they think that means you've got to endure and persevere and continue to do good works and hang on to the end. If not, you're going to hell. Not at all what he's talking about in the context. It has nothing to do with heaven or hell. He's just saying those who physically survive all of this devastation that I've just described to you will be the ones who are delivered, saved means delivered, into the kingdom. And then later on in the Olivet Discourse, he explains the mechanism of that. It's the sheep and the goat's judgment. To the sheep, he's going to say, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. You survived, you endured. You hid out in caves, or you withstood the, the you, know, you didn't take the mark of the beast, and you, you, didn't, you weren't persecuted, you didn't get beheaded, like so many believers will be martyred during that time. Uh, and to them he will say, Come ye blessed of the Father, inherit the kingdom. And then those believers in their physical bodies will be the ones that populate the earth. Uh, they procreate and have children, and those children will be born like every human being, dead in their trespasses and sins, and they will have to at some point place their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. But by the end of the thousand years, you'll end up with a situation where there are, once again, quite a contingent of unbelievers on the earth, and those who chose not to trust Christ, who were born during the millennium. At the start of the millennium, there's not going to be a single unbeliever on earth, all believers that survived the tribulation, the sheep. But within short order, there will begin to be a population of unbelievers. So the second coming, and we talked about this previously, there are many differences between the second coming, which you see over here where the sheep and the goats arrow is pointing, and the rapture, which you see back over here on the far left. At the rapture, one second after the rapture, there will not be a single believer on earth. All unbelievers. Now think about the horrors of that. <laughs> That's the reason 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit will be lifted. And I talk about this in my DVD, One Minute After the Rapture, uh, where uh, you, know, you think it's bad now. Wait till the restraining influence of believers that has an untold influence, often unheralded, unknown, unspoken of behind the scenes that is restraining Satan now. That's the reason, by the way, that the, the Luciferians have not ushered in their one world system yet. You know, sometimes people will make that argument with me. Well, if there's this Luciferian conspiracy, and there is, the Bible talks about it and history talks about it ad nauseum. Uh, go back and watch Spirit of the Antichrist. Uh, but if, people will say, well, if there is, how come they haven't ushered in the one world system yet? Well, they're trying. They're trying desperately. But there are two things that stand in their way. Number one, God's sovereign timetable. Remember, God is sovereign, and he's not willing that any should perish. And for reasons known only to him, and we're not entitled to know why, he's letting things go on until he's ready to usher in these end times. Remember, 16% of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. 
And it'll be fulfilled just like the rest of prophecy was fulfilled, literally. But another thing that is keeping the Luciferians from ushering in the one world system is you and I, the church, believers. You know, you think about all the times when maybe in a corporate executive meeting where maybe they were wanting to do something illegal or immoral or nefarious and some uh, unheralded believing man or woman stands up and says, no, we shouldn't do that. That's not, that doesn't have integrity. And they make a difference. Or you know, even down to the local level, on a school board level, when you know, people like my friend Bart, who serve faithfully on the school board and, and serve with a biblical worldview, and if they feel like the group is maybe making a decision that is contrary to the, the counsel of God's word, they stand up boldly and say, you know, I'm not, I'm not for that. And often they can sway the vote in favor of a godly decision. And so after the rapture, that restraining influence will be gone. And all hell is literally going to break loose on the earth. And then, of course, uh, we know that, uh, and we'll get to this when we talk in more in-depth about the tribulation after we finish this session today, uh, but the, the Lord, because there are no believers on earth after the rapture, and again, we're talking here, just to make sure we're all looking at the same spot, we're talking right here. And our live streamers are wondering where I went probably hoping I don't come back, but I'm back, sorry. Uh, so that's what we're talking about. Right right after the rapture, God will supernaturally uh, uh, seal, Revelation 7 tells us, 144,000 believers who get saved. It doesn't tell us how they get saved, but we know by comparing Scripture with Scripture that they get saved the way anyone gets saved from Genesis to Revelation, by faith. So somehow... They hear and believe the gospel. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Having believed the gospel, they're then sealed so that they're protected from martyrdom. And they become the first witnesses, the first missionaries to go throughout the world during that final seven-year period. Remember, as we talked about earlier, Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says, the gospel will be preached to the uttermost parts of the earth and then the end will come. And he's talking about this seven-year period. So that by the time you get to the second coming, every people group on earth will have heard the gospel. Our goal right now in the present church age, over here on the far left, is to do the same thing, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And that's what mission work is all about. We're going to hear in our worship service today about a missionary in initiative that we've had for a while at our church, led by one of our elders, Fred, in Peru where we're helping to equip and train pastors to share the gospel in another part of the world. That's the goal of the church. We call it the Great Commission. But we don't have a promise in Scripture that we will successfully reach every people group prior to the rapture. We may, but the Bible never promises that will happen. The Bible does explicitly promise, through the words of our Lord Himself, that we will reach every people group prior to the second coming, and that's during the seven-year period, and that's the purpose of those 144,000 Jewish witnesses. So all I want you to understand is that after the rapture, when you and I are rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath, there will only be unbelievers on the earth at first. After the second coming, uh, when we come back to rule and reign with Christ and the sheep enter the kingdom, uh, there will only be believers on the earth for a short time. So it's kind of the opposite. But again, over time, that will change. So the Son of Man comes uh, with all of his holy angels, separates the nations. Now, the nation of Israel, I talk about this in the book, believers that are Jews, ethnic Jews, 
they will also be a part of this moment in history that Jesus is describing now at his return. But it'll look a little different for them. They're not going to literally be lined up with the believers because the Bible promises going way back a thousand years before Christ and repeatedly through all the prophets and even Jesus himself has uh, promised this in Matthew uh, 24. I don't have it on the screen, but in the first part, when remember I said there's twice that Jesus refers to his actual return during the Olivet Discourse. The first was in Matthew 24:29, when he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, so again, we're talking at the end of the tribulation, uh, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Matthew 24, verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now watch this. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds uh, uh, from one end of heaven to the other. That is a fulfillment of many Old Testament passages that speak of a supernatural regathering of Israel in their homeland. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, for example. Isaiah chapter 27. So, at the time that the sheep and goats judgment is going on, Jewish believers, in fulfillment of the promise, will be supernaturally transported into the kingdom at the same time that uh, Gentile believers will be told, hey, come on in. All right. So, if we read on, uh, he will set the sheep on his right hand, the goats on the left, and the king will say to those on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This has been what it's about all along. For I was Now here's where it gets interesting. He's using a metaphor. Remember, we're not talking about literal sheep and goats. This is an extended uh, metaphor. Now he shifts the metaphor. And he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, a lot of misinformed uh, Christians appeal to this verse to support a social gospel. The suggestion that if we want to go to heaven, we've got to be kind. We've got to feed the hungry. We've got to clothe the naked, and so forth. It's a social gospel. Now, that notion, it's bizarre to me that anyone would come up with that, because if there's one thing the Bible is clear about from cover to cover, it's the one and only requirement to get into heaven. And if that's what this were saying, then it would fly in the face and blatantly contradict the entire counsel of Scripture. What he's talking about here is, uh, and they're going to ask the same question. They're going to say, well, what are you talking about? Because they know, these sheep, the believers, they know the only reason they're getting into the kingdom is by faith. It's by faith that we're justified. By faith, Abraham believed God and was justified, declared righteous. And so they're going to say, well, what do you mean? When did we do this? When did we see you hungry? And notice what he says. Well, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, fellow Jews, in other words, you did it to me. I believe he's speaking of the manner in which they responded to the 144,000 Jewish witnesses that went out. And for him to say that you gave them food and drink and took them in is basically saying you had a positive response to them and you believed their message. In other words, this isn't this is a eschatological passage of scripture. Jesus is answering a question about the timing of the kingdom. He's not intending to here to get down into the nitty-gritty of precisely how someone comes to faith. 
You want to see what Jesus has to say about that? Read the Gospel of John. And again and again and again, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Full stop, end of discussion, right? That's the only way to be saved. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone, just like our sign out there says. So uh, he's not getting into that level of detail. He's just explaining, uh, again, this is in the context of that seven-year period, and in, during that seven years, these 144,000 missionaries are going to come door-to-door. -door. They're not coming door-to-door -to, -door to stick a needle in your arm like they're doing now. They're coming door-to-door -to, -door to share with you the good news about Jesus Christ. And, uh, and they're going to, and, and if you invite them in and say, oh, I'm so glad you were here. I, I thought you were the Stasi, or I thought you, I'm just afraid you, you know, I've got my kids hiding in a basement because I wasn't sure if you were, you know, the Antichrist regime coming to take us to the guillotines. But yeah, come on in. And then you, they, and then you welcome them in and you listen to their message. You believe the gospel. Then you become a sheep. Then you become, in, in his analogy here anyway, one who has believed the gospel and uh, so that's the my brethren that he's talking about there is fellow Jews, the ones that have been set apart, uh, the 144,000 missionaries. And if you respond favorably to their message, Jesus says, if you believe the gospel, then you are saved. But then he says, what about the goats? Well, to those on his left, uh, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he goes through the same thing, essentially saying you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brethren. You did not welcome them. You were ashamed. You closed the door on them. And you, you elbowed your way to the front of the line to take the mark of the beast. Just like all the other you know, people that didn't believe the gospel. And because you didn't receive their message, because you didn't respond favorably to these 144,000 witnesses that I've sent out, then you're not going to uh, be saved. He says that you will go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous, and this is the key, notice how he ends with a very bold, underlined, increased font size, exclamation point, if you will. It's the righteous who go into an eternal life. Not the ones who helped feed the hungry or clothe the poor. <laughs> Not the social God, but the righteous. And the righteous, especially in Matthew's gospel, that term, dikaiosune, it means justified, declared righteous, perfect righteousness. You can go all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount, which at least historically, you know, I know Matthew still has three more chapters after this, but in terms of Christ's three and a half year ministry, it's bookended by the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse. What did he say to the Sermon on the Mount? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom. In fact, to, just to clarify, he says in Matthew 5.48, you've got to be perfect. It's not just about being better than them. You've got to be absolutely pure and righteous with no sin whatsoever. And the only way to get that kind of righteousness is to have it imputed to you by faith. So... Jesus talks about faith frequently. The very first encounter that he has after the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew 8, is with the centurion and his servant. The centurion's a Gentile, and because the centurion believed in Jesus, Jesus commends, no doubt for the hearing of all those gathered around, the faith of the centurion. And he says, I have not seen such great faith, not even in Israel. And he goes on to say, I tell you the truth, People will come from the east and the west, meaning Gentiles, to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jews, in the kingdom. But only if they have faith. 
only if they have faith. So when he says here at the end of the Olivet Discourse, it's the righteous who go into eternal life, that's the standard. That's the requirement. And how do we receive that righteousness? Well, we, we've talked about several passages already, but the book of Romans tells us unmistakably how we do that. Chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So uh, that's kind of the, uh, you know, the, this, the end of, of that section. And so uh, we've got a few minutes left for questions, but any questions about anything in the sheep and the goats or, and I know you'd have to strain your memory to go back to the previous nine sessions that we have spent in the Olivet Discourse, but questions about the Olivet Discourse in general. Anybody? Yes, Kelly. So, how do you differentiate the um, the meanings of the word land, world, uh, everywhere uh, when it's mentioned in prophetic areas such as this in Revelation? I was speaking with several who knew some Hebrew, and they were saying that's mistranslated. That's they're talking to this land, this area. But later on, it says it goes into all the, all the world. Well, they would say, well, the known, it's the known world. How do you distinguish that? So the question is, I'd have to look at what specific part of the Olivet Discourse. You're talking, you're talking about when he says this gospel will be preached to the uttermost parts of the world, Matthew 24, 14? Yeah. Okay. So, so right. uh, this, and the question is, how do you just differentiate between world and a localized thing? Context. Context always determines meaning with everything. So he, there's nothing in the context that would indicate world doesn't mean world. If, if, if uh, you know, we use the word the same way in English. You know, we might be, say, talking to our teenagers, and we might say something like, you know, well, your little world is so different from, you know, ours. Well, we're talking about their experience, their life, their things that intersect with their life right there. But their claim is that world is, is what was the known world at that time. No. And then they bring up other examples of everyone comes together before God. If they're saying, does every literary literally in the world come together? Yes. No. Yeah. Yeah. Again, world means world. Cosmos is the Greek word. World means world. So unless the context limits it somehow, the, the, the lexical meaning prevails. So we can use words sometimes to mean a variety of things. You know, that's why we have dictionaries, to give us a range of meaning. But you don't get to randomly declare what world war. The same people that are doing that, Calvinists, are suggesting, for example, in 1 John 2, 2, when, G, when John says, He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That what he really meant was, not for ours only, but the sins of everybody else who's elect. <laughs> So if you, if you bring your theology to the text, you can turn the words to mean whatever they want. But he's speaking here of a global event that is a pivotal moment in fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy when the long-awaited Messiah is finally at last coming back to take the throne. He's not going to be crowned with thorns. He's going to be crowned as a king, and he's going to rule and reign, as Isaiah said, and as all the Old Testament prophets say, over the whole world, all the nations of the world will be upon his shoulder and will come under him. He will strike the nations, Revelation 19 says, with a sword. So clearly the context of this event is global in scope. And so when Jesus says in that context that the gospel will be preached to the whole world, he's talking about the whole world. People do the same thing with the flood. Because uh, Darwinian evolutionary atheistic satanic science tells us that you couldn't possibly have a global flood 
and that were, that were billions of years old, evolved from a wet rock, that when the Bible says the, all the high hills on the entire earth were covered with water, well, he, what he really meant was just the ones right there around Noah's neighborhood. You know, That's because they're bringing their presuppositions to the text. So good question. Thanks for, for that. Yeah. I might have missed this, J.B., but the 144,000 are they just going to the Jews, or will they go to everyone? So, great question. Um, are the 144,000 missionaries that are marked out at the beginning of the tribulation just targeting the Jews? And the answer is no. In fact, uh, I should have clarified that. They themselves are Jewish. In fact, the text tells us it's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, and it lists the 12 tribes. Um but they, their target is anyone who will hear the gospel. And we know that because in that same passage, Revelation 7, it says that their harvest of souls, those who get saved, are from people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. So that's not just Jews. So there will be a whole a host. But what we need to remember is that once the rapture happens, as, as you know, we see talked about in Daniel 9, God's spotlight returns to His people and His holy city. So Daniel's 490-year prophecy is all about Israel. The church has no part in it. The first 483 years were fulfilled to the day, up until Christ's triumphal entry. And then there's a parenthesis, or an, what we call in theological circles an intercalation, a, a pause, if you will, in God's plan for Israel. And there's still seven more years that have to be fulfilled. They haven't been fulfilled yet. But like the first 483 years, they will be fulfilled literally. That's what this seven-year period is called. That's why we call it Daniel's 70th week, or the final seven years. A week there means seven-year period, Shabuah. So Daniel's 70th Shabuah, which is a week of years, will, will occur. That's the reason Jeremiah the prophet calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Right? Who's Jacob? Israel. So it's totally Jewish in nature. You read the book of Revelation, once the tribulation starts, you never see a single reference to the church. Right? So it's all about Israel. We know the Bible has promised that we won't be here during that time. But that's the reason that the missionaries are Jewish. It's not because they're only targeting their kinsmen. It's because it's a Jewish kingdom. It's a Jewish world. Uh, today, the church is center stage, and we're the ones spreading the gospel. During that time, Israel is going to be center stage. Jerusalem is going to be the capital city of the world. The Antichrist will, will rule from there. And uh, he'll set himself up as God. The Jews will be, you know, once again, uh, if you go back to the Battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 28 and 29, or 38 and 39, uh, once again, kind of be the center focus of the world. So, yeah. Oh, good question. Good question. So Sally asked, once believer, once the people get saved during the tribulation, as a result initially of the 144,000 missionaries, uh, will those Christians, well, they won't be Christians, but will those believers then be evangelizing other people? And the answer is yes. It's it's like that old shampoo commercial. You know, they told two people, and they told two people, and they told two people, and so on, and so on, and so on. Half the people in this room have no idea what I'm talking about. But just, I'm sure it's on YouTube. Uh, so, uh, 
but that's the idea. So that's the reason that we can say that the Bible says there is an untold number of, of every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. If it was just 144,000 and they just had seven years, we could probably speculate that it would be a fairly finite number of people, but it's, it's this exponential uh, uh, growth. And because of the nature of things on earth at that time, with all hell breaking loose, supernatural things, you know, you know, basically we see the setting of the stage for that now. And by the way, if you've not watched the Wednesday study that we started this past Wednesday and we'll continue every Wednesday, you need to go back and watch those videos or that video and, and join us in, in succeeding weeks because we're seeing a setting of the stage for the types of things that are going to happen in earnest during that time. But because everyone's mind is on supernatural things and they feel like the end is coming, they're going to be really ripe to, to hear the gospel and there will be a great harvest of souls. So. All right, last question, then we'll take a break. The mark of the beast seems to be something that physically happens to you. Do you, do you think it's possible for them to forcibly give it to someone? I mean, it, I'm just confused. You know, in today's society, there's, there's things happening by force. Could a person be pinned down and given the mark of the beast? And why wouldn't they want to do that? Especially if it means, you know, condemnation and would. So, great question. His question is about the Moderna, I mean, the mark of the beast. Um, so, uh, the question is since it is something that improves their life and allows them to move freely and to travel and to, to buy and sell, why wouldn't they? take it well many will i would say most will but there will be some who resist but not for uh, a christian a believer will never take the mark of the beast so that's clear um, but there will be some unbelievers who for other reasons because they've studied they're aware they realize it's dangerous it could be harmful and and they see through the lies and the deception they may resist and they will be forcibly given the mark of the beast is that, was that, is that the question in essence? Well, I know that believers won't get the mark of the beast because that doesn't, you know, we know believers are granted eternal life. But could a believer be held down and administered a mark of the beast, whatever that might be? I mean, it, it doesn't seem possible according to Scripture, but why wouldn't an evil person try to do that? I see what you're saying. So I think he was picked up uh, on the mic, but just to be sure, uh, regarding believers during the tribulation, Will the uh, uh, false prophet and the Antichrist and their evil regime be seeking out believers to force them down and forcibly give them the mark? Uh, all we can say, I'm trying to go to Scripture in my mind's eye, all we can say for certain is that believers won't, take, won't have the mark because everyone who has the mark is eternally condemned, and we know believers are eternally saved, so they're not, it's incompatible. Um, I guess, and we know Jesus says that to believers that they should head for the hills and flee when he, you know, he doesn't start that mark of the beast approach until the midpoint, three and a half years in. Um, so that's a good question. That's a very good question. I think there's, I'm sure there's an answer, but on the spot, I'm having trouble. Supernatural protection is probably just. Yeah, I think supernatural protection and. Uh, yeah, that's probably it. I mean, they're hiding out in caves and so forth. Um, so yeah, that's a good question. Um, I've always just, I've never really thought that granularly about what it's going to look like. I've just thought conceptually that we know that believers won't take it. But uh, let me do some thinking on that and, 
if I can make up a good answer, I'll, <laughs> I'll come back. All right, well, let's take a break, um, and we'll kick back off at 10 o'clock for our service. By the way, great crowd. Thank you guys for coming out for Bible study. For those of you live streaming, we will pick back up with a live stream at approximately 10.30 when the message uh, begins. But for those of you here, our service starts at 10 o'clock. Well, like babies, you think about